Hi, Randy. Do you remember the good old days when startups could build a product, call it a beta because they hadn't tested it yet, and your average user would just be grateful that it existed, even if it didn't work very well? Ah, yes, those were the days. People are much more demanding today. They expect everything to just work. I mean, do you remember how many years that Gmail was in beta? And it's still beta, not beta. Or that the iPhone didn't have cut and paste until a few versions in? Well, it's even worse now. The standards are so high, companies are resorting to delighting their users. It's unbelievable. <laughs> and our wonderful guest, Nezreen Shangel, has spent years working on some huge household names like Google Meet, Spotify, and Skype to figure out how you employ delight to win your users' hearts. In this episode, Nezreen talks about what delight is, how to find opportunities to delight, and how to measure the impact of this important emotion. So let's get delighting. Let's not waste any more time. Let's get right to it. The Product Experience is brought to you by Mind the Product. Every week on the podcast, we talk to the best product people from around the globe. Visit mindtheproduct.com to catch up on past episodes and discover loads of free resources to help you with your product practice. You can also find more information about Mind the Products conferences and their great training opportunities happening around the world and online. Create a free account on the website for a fully personalized experience and to get access to the full library of awesome content and the weekly curated newsletter. Mind the Product also offers free product tank meetups in more than 200 cities. There's probably one near you. Hi, Nesreen. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Hi, Lily. I'm very good. Thank you. It's very lovely to be talking to you. Delightful, in fact. <laughs> I just <laughs> thought of that one, which is the topic of today's chat. But before we get into the conversation, it'd be great if you could give our listeners a real quick intro into who you are and what you're doing in product these days. Sure. So I'm Nasreen. I'm a product expert, advisor, and coach. Uh, let me tell you how I got there. So I first started my career in tech, like uh, doing an engineering uh, degree back up many years ago. And then I got myself even deeper in tech because I did a PhD in Paris uh, around signal processing, video compressions, and some cool uh, topics at the time. So my career has been more designed to go into research engineering. So I started my career as a research engineer at Alcatel-Lucent Bell Labs for five years. And then I got uh, reached out for my first PM role at Microsoft in Sweden. So I got offered my first PM role at Skype as the video PM. And at the time we've been organized as video PM, audio PM, calling PM, dealing with different aspects of uh, Skype product. Uh, when I say Skype, it's the Skype for consumer and not the Skype for business that uh, moved into Teams later. So I've been in uh, Skype Sweden for about four years. We worked on features. Uh, it feels very basic nowadays, but it's very funny because we couldn't have group video calls at the time. So we worked on introducing group video calls on mobile for Skype. We worked on features like... Uh, uh, translating uh, live conversation at Skype, etc. And being in Sweden, uh, after a couple of years, I wanted to explore 
Scandinavian culture and a, and a Swedish product. So I moved into Spotify. So I've been a PM at Spotify for another four lovely years. And I've been the media experience PM there, meaning that we worked on how can you have the best Spotify experience independently of your device and independently of your network. So whether you are in Europe or in any other country, even like go with, with low uh, connectivity uh, condition, you're supposed to have the best audio experience. And this has been my, this has been my, my, my biggest mission for, for about four years. The interesting part in my career is that when I left Skype, I thought that we've been super mature in the video conferencing domain. The reality is that my hypothesis was completely wrong when COVID hit. When COVID hits, we realize that the video conferencing has been extremely effective and efficient for corporate environment. But when you're working from home, nothing was ready. So that's why, like at the time, Google Meet has been heavily investing into improving Google Meet to make it more uh, adapted for the remote and also more delightful. And that's how I get into Google for my first uh, uh, product in Google, which has been Google Meet. Uh, we worked on features like background replace, which is funny again to talk about it because we can't imagine not having <laughs> background replace and background blur. But this feature has been driven by the remote uh, meetings condition and the needs from the users at the time. Um, so after being a PM for Google Meet, uh, two years ago, I moved back to Paris, uh, still with Google, but on a new product. And actually, that was the very first time that I moved away from media. So I've been in Skype, Spotify, Google Meet. And I stepped away from my tech comfort zone and worked as a PM for Chrome on iOS. I felt confident enough because like after a couple of years, 10 years of PM, independently of the product, you gain skills that you're supposed to be able to, of course, apply them on all products. So I moved to Paris. I worked on Google Chrome for iOS. We worked on amazing features, like how can you make Chrome cross-device and at the same time, that was the time where I also started being super active in community, like giving talks and teaching. I've been teaching at INSEAD or HEC Business School here in Paris. And I loved it, actually. I loved it so much. I found it so rewarding that I just wanted to do more of that. And that was the trigger for me to just say, hey, I just want to do that for the next couple of years and let it be. So I left Google. This is my very first month out of Google, actually. <laughs> and I'm uh, so my my focus so far is, of course, like doing uh, corporate trainings, but also helping uh, product leads, uh, adopting a good product culture and uh, helping them build product that not only uh, help user uh, get be used by by users, but also loved by users. Awesome. That was a very thorough introduction. Thank you very much. So you've worked on some huge consumer products, you know, products that a lot of consumers have used and will be familiar with. And our topic for tonight is Delight. Um, so tell me about Delight in, in tech. Like what, what are we talking about? Yeah, so when we hear Delight, we may feel like it's a buzzword. Uh, but the reality is that customer delight is a way for product teams to create lasting competitive landscape. It's it's about having... Um, so let, let me get more into the definition and then we can get into uh, examples. So 
there are two ways to describe what's delight. There is the theoretical part and there is the more operational and practical part. Let's start with the boring one, the theoretical one. Uh, the theory behind delight came or was conceptualized and popularized by a professor called Bluchik. He's an American professor who actually studied delight for almost the entire career. And he actually studied emotion in general and put emotion into circle. And he came up with a framework called the, the Polchik framework. And the outcome of the framework says that delight can be result of a combination of two emotions. So if you put two emotions next to each other, you create delight. These emotions are the surprise and the joy. So let's say if you have a moment where you create joy and surprise at the same time, this is where you're supposed to experience delight. By the way, for instance, for example, just to go into that framework, love is the combination of joy and acceptance. Uh, same for disappointment. Disappointment comes when you have a combination of surprise and sadness. So that was the theory behind studying emotion. And I love this definition because it, it can help us understand where we're going, what kind of emotion we are supposed to create when we are uh, creating a product. So this is about creating a combination of surprise and joy. Now, uh, on a less theoretical definition now, designing for delight for me is about reminding your users that there is a real human behind the product. It's not a machine. It's something when the user are using, they can feel that they are getting help and they feel that there is a human aspect. They can feel emotion. They can feel like emotionally connected with the, with the product. Now, let's get how people feel about delight. The... The mistake I would say is that most people, when they hear delight, they think about those nice interactions or nice animation or these nice colors. But the reality is delight is much more than that. And that's why we can think about two types of delight. So there is what we call the surface delight, and there is what we call the deep delight. So the surface delight is exactly what I mentioned, like those nice interactions sometimes personalized to remind you about something uh, for, for the users or for the community. And the best example I can tell you just happened to me recently, like uh, if you have an Apple Watch, when it's your birthday, you get those this nice interaction, say, happy birthday, Nasreen. I was like, yeah, this is nice. I mean, very simple, very small, but I, I loved it. Uh, Google Maps are doing something nice as well. If you're setting your address as home, and when you arrive home, instead of getting or you reach your destination, which could be a bit boring, you get like, hey, welcome home. Again, it's not like something that will change the world, but it's something that brings you a small, like a small smile. So this is what I call the surface delight. The surface delight has a value only when you are already bringing all the foundation, like you're functioning perfectly. I mean, you can't start building surface delight if your product is missing most of the pieces. How important is this stuff really? I mean, most of the time that I've been working on stuff, we're desperately trying to add new features and new functionality. We're trying to get all the missing pieces. How much time should we be spending? And does this stuff, you know, like a little firework showing up in a welcome home, is that really making that much of a difference with customers? Yeah, so... I think these, if we, if we just get back to the surface delight, so the question is, I guess, mostly about surface delight. These are usually small features that do not uh, require a lot of development time. 
So those are usually like driven by designers and they are there to remind us again that there are human behind the product. So uh, if I, uh, I can, again, we have so many examples uh, that, uh, that can show us that Surface Delight are, are things that we like interacting with, but also there are plenty of products that just failed even with plenty of Surface Delight on them for the only reason that they didn't honor most of the functionality. So it's about finding a balance that functionalities are functioning as it has to be, but at the same time, but while introducing uh, small aspects of delight into, into them. But again, I just want to say that the surface delight is a thing that it ha has to have its place, of course, in the roadmap, but it's not the most uh, important part. The most important part, though, is the deep delight, which is like more holistic here. And it's only achieved once all users' needs are met. And I mean functionality. Re uh, reliability, usability, and of course, uh, pleasurability. It has to be pleasurable, of course. Uh, users may have a poor experience on the site and yet feel uh, surface delight occasionally, but the deep delight is experienced when the interface behaves like an assistant. Just think about you're in a product and you have something just happening by magic. Uh, I love explaining by example. For example, the best example, I don't know if you're using Gmail, and they have this uh, Smart Compose. Smart Compose is just a small feature. When you're writing your email, you almost tap, 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 and almost all your email. I mean, those suggestions that you're given just to make you um, gain time and go faster. And, and I love those joyful, surprising, and useful moment. Uh, not just, uh, I, I can give another example, which for me is a very funny one, which is the Chrome Dino. I guess, I, I bet you all played the Chrome Dino. I mean, that small game on Chrome. And the story behind it is quite interesting. I mean, that game was invented many, many years ago when we all experienced bad connections and network issues. And what happens is that users feel frustration at that time. And in order to cover up that uh, frustration and move to something more joyful, uh, a designer came up with an idea, hey, why not putting a game there? So until the connection is back, uh, we, we make them busy with a funny and interactive way. And this is how the Chrome Dino game came into, uh, into, into the browser. It's very simple. It was developed in two days. And, and now it's becoming the mascot. It's like the the icon of Chrome, and it's giving a lot of good reputation for the product as well. Nisreen, I had a, a friend who worked for an airline, and they were asked how they could, they, they worked in marketing for the airline, and they were asked how they could improve the, the NPS, you know, the ex user experience. And what they found was every time that there was a delay, the the uh, um, flight attendants were given the permission to give out drinks and give out champagne and things like that. And every time they did that, their ratings went up. So yes. the facetious thing is introduce more delays, which is obviously not the thing you want. So the dyno is not, you, you know, it comes up at a moment of frustration when you have a bad network the or a bad connection or, or something fails. So obviously you want to avoid that whenever possible. So how do we how do we deal with this? How do we prioritize this kind of thing for when something is bad versus 
trying to make things less bad. Yeah, this is a good example. So, uh, by the way, I have another one, which is very funny. We've been through it at the Skype uh, moment. So when I worked for Skype, we measured success using a metric called MOS, uh, Median Opinion Score. The MOS is just those five star where by the end of the call, uh, you're asked to rate a call for one star to five stars. And the interesting part during my Skype time is that we measured success by monitoring those uh, those number of stars. And it was extremely hard, almost impossible to move that metric. I mean, it's so high level that it's same, a bit like the NPS, but uh, I see that by offering champagne, you can move it. But for Skype, moving the number of stars has been extremely hard for the four years I worked at Skype. But something magic happened. We did uh, a test by increasing the volume. We just increased the volume by a certain percentage. And it was the unique time during my time at Skype where the MOS had a jump of 0.5. Like something we ha- we couldn't even see uh, a 0.01% change in the MOS. And just by changing the volume, it changed the MOS. Why I'm telling this story? Again, this is to say that it wasn't the right thing to do because we don't want... I mean, imagine we will keep increasing the volume and then we will get like something completely <laughs> horrible and people will, will say, ah, I like the call because the volume was high. So we shifted our mind from saying, hey, instead of measuring the mass, we will just measure the poor call rate. We called it at the time PCR. We will measure the number of people rating the call between one and two stars. We will completely forget about the average. It doesn't say anything. We will just focus on those who really experienced super bad call. And by just shifting that goal and that objective, we made amazing things. And we, we shifted like even the way how we prioritize the features. So I don't know if that helped Randy in your question, but it's mostly about what do you want to measure? Is NPS the right thing? I mean, NPS is about the reputation of a brand, but does it say really lot of things about engagement, retention, adoption. I'm not sure, actually. And that's a really interesting point as well, because how do you find ways to discover, like, how to delight your users and and your customers? You mentioned, you know, you were experimented with volume there for, and then accidentally, by, by all accounts, improved the experience. But, you know, the, there must be ways in which you can do discovery to like very specifically focused on delight? Yes. So what I've seen from most of the products that I didn't work for those products actually, but what I see from uh, what uh, most of the talks and most of the article about uh, how to prioritize features is that many product teams has a problem solution mindset. Like they, they look for users problem and then they try to identify features that just satisfy those problems or satisfy users' need. The problem is that if you want to delight users, you should not just satisfy them or just um, give them what they ask it for. You need to think about something above. And this something above happens to be the emotional connections. You need to connect with the user on an emotional level. You need to trigger some emotion, and that's how people will become more loyal to to the product and they will get back to the product more often. They will recommend your product. By the way, there's been a research by Harvard Business Review who just studied 
the comparison between highly satisfied users and emotionally connected users. They put those into two buckets and try to understand how much more likely an emotionally connected user would engage more with the product compared to a highly satisfied one. And the results of the study came with 50% more, 50% more likely to engage, to recommend your product, and of course to buy your product, which I guess this is what we are looking for. So this is just to set the foundation why it's important to focus on triggering emotion. And uh, it's then all about how can we identify the emotional motivators? What do you, Lily or Randy, motivate you on an emotional level? Let's, let's be clear, this is hard. It's not easy for a PM to identify motivates my users on an emotional level. So uh, it's very important during the discovery phase to try to put this in mind and say, hey, I do a lot of user interview. Did I focus on what makes them feel happy or sad or frustrated? And uh, during my PM time, something I did a lot is to try to identify the emotional demotivators because the reality is that we are much more open to share what demotivates us or makes us frustrated, sad, angry. I think we can share much more when we are asked about those questions than, hey, what makes you happy or what makes you uh, excited? So we spent a lot of time trying to understand what demotivates our users on an emotional level and then try to come up with solutions that can just uh, at least reduce these demotivation and makes, uh, and convert them into a good and positive emotion. Nezrin, you were in the lucky position of being a product manager for Delight. I mean, that was your job was to look for uh, how to add Delight across the experience. Most companies aren't set up that way. So how much effort, how much, what percentage of your, of your resource would you, you know, if you're in a new role, what percentage of your resource would you devote to this? I mean, obviously it was 100% of your job at one place, but you were one team of many. I will correct you, Randy. So throughout my 10 years as a PM, I've been only two years as a full delight PM. Right. So it was only during my Google Meet time. But the reality is that most of my career has been a PM who was supposed to create a successful product by introducing any kind, including Delight. So yes, uh, I've been lucky in Google because we don't have those conflicting priority. Hey, should I prioritize Delight versus performance or versus uh, functionality? And that helps. And that's a luxury that I fully understand that not all company and not all team can afford. But let me tell you the story of my time at Spotify, for example. At Spotify, my mission which is very far from being delight, was to make sure that you can listen to music in a good experience way, in a non-interrupted, in a smooth way. And for that, we had a lot of uh, features in, in my backlog that hands from Hi-Fi. Maybe you heard about the Hi-Fi feature at Spotify, this lossless format where you create um, uh, audio that is not compressed. That was a request that we had from a lot of clients. We also worked on super low bitrate when we get into India and Vietnam and I mean, those countries where we really, really needed to enter those markets with a very low bitrate. So from a user interactive 
perspective, I mean, you may not call it as delight. But if you are convinced that delight has to be in your product, we also manage to squeeze in so many delight features. I mean, if I tell you about them, you will say, Oh, yes, I know that feature because we were just convinced that we didn't want to have a flat and boring backlog of only functionality and performance. By the way, we introduced that, you know, when you open a track, you have that 10 second of clip uh, loop video. We call it Spotify Canvas. So that was a small feature that we introduced. It has nothing to do with performance. None of our users or artists requested it, but we wanted to introduce it as a way of entertaining and um, delighting our users. We also introduced uh, features like uh, uh, artist clips where artists can uh, upload a small video to engage and, and share updates and news with their fans. I mean, the reason why I'm sharing this example because it was not in a time where I've been a fully delighted PM. And I've been in a time where performance has been super, super high stake and very important. But, and you ask it about percentage. It's yeah. not about percentage. It's about making sure that when you look on your roadmap, it feels coherent. I mean, the way how I did it, for example, I always put my delight uh, features into pink. I just want to put them into a color. It's pink. And if I look at my roadmap and I don't see pink, around the roadmap, it's a bad sign. It means that your roadmap is going to be just about features. It's, it's just about functionality and it's not going to bring joy and surprise. So I want to see a bit of pink in the beginning of the year, a bit of pink in the middle of the year and a bit at the end. But you don't want it to be all pink. So I'm, I'm, I, and I know you've, you developed this, you have an instinct for this now of, of what the right balance is. I'm just asking for, for other people who are, trying to get started with this and incorporate it into their practice, how much-ish? I know there's no right answer. There's no definitive one, but yes. what, what's, what kind of target would you say is a nice one to think about? I would say 10% of the of, of your roadmap would be, would be a, at least a minimum to target. And of course, if you have the ability to get up to 20, that would be great. Make your roadmap at least 10% pink. Okay, yes. got it. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and definitely not all your roadmap pink because then you're going to lose. <laughs> <laughs> and just going back to the discovery piece as well. So, you know, you mentioned a couple of features there that you added during your time at Spotify. Like, how did you decide that you were going to add those features? Are, are you having very specific sort of creative workshops focused around delight with your team or something else? Yeah, so... Uh... I can tell you a specific example, for example, from my time at Google Meet as something we, we did and how we did it so we can understand more or less how things can, uh, how we can think about uh, creating delight into a roadmap. So as I mentioned earlier, during the COVID time, we all found ourselves spending hours, many hours per day to call our friends, colleague, uh, family, etc. And with that new behavior came uh, some negative emotion. Uh, we classify those emotion. We asked our users, what, what, what do you feel about those? We uh, noted boredom. We noted lack of interaction. We noted lack of uh, engagement. There was even a term that uh, was born at, uh, from that time was called the Zoom fatigue, by the way. 
it's mm. okay when it, it's already fatigue, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> um, and by the way, Stanford also studied what is this Zoom fatigue or what are the causes of Zoom fatigue. And we, we spent a lot of our time with the, with the designers, with the engineers, trying to dig not into what solution we want to build for that, but the, what causes, what are the biggest factors that created this boredom? Like boredom was was kind of the top. And like, why? Why people are feeling much more bo- bored now than they would feel in, in the office, like when, when they are having a physical meeting. And as I said earlier, th- this is like a, um, an emotional demotivator, definitely. So we try to understand what's the opposite of boredom. And you could think it's fun. And we've been into that wrong path for some time. And I love the story because you may think that the opposite of boredom is fun. But the reality is that we can get bored from fun. I mean, if you're always into Disney every day, you get bored. And that's why kids also are eager to grow up so so quickly because they're bored from fun. They want to learn more from life. Uh, by the way, I love sharing the story because I've been in Disney one day and they offered the discount. They said, uh, if you get one ticket, uh, you get the, a second free, but you have to consume it for the same month. And I think it was a very bad strategy because I went, I, I, the first one, it was a pure delight. The second one, because I had to do it within the same mo- month, it, was, it wasn't the best experience <laughs> at all. Like, and I think I didn't get back for three years or five years after that because I just remember the second time, which was boring for me. Right. <laughs> so, so by digging, in, digging further into the opposite of boredom, we realized that the, op- the real opposite of boredom is the fact of feeling engaged when people are engaged into a topic a subject and in a, a conversation they are much less likely to feel bored so i'm trying to tell you like the path how we get into things so we studied how can look at what kind of opportunity what kind of features we can develop and introduce into the product in order to make people feel less uh, more engaged and more alive and then, of course, many features came out of that study, and one of them was uh, video reactions. Uh, so the fact of you can send the heart or a thumb up, that happens to be quite successful because we realize that people find it quite slow to write a comment or to unmute themselves to an invasive conversation to say that they agree. So that was one of the solutions that we proposed, of course. But the best part is not the solution that we proposed, but rather how you get there. The fact that you are spending much more time focusing on what what causes those emotional demotivation and how can you create a positive one. Nizreen, I'm curious. I've also seen examples sometimes where attempts to add delight have gone wrong. And I'm thinking uh, there was a, I think it was SoundCloud, I think it was for April Fool's Day putting uh, uh, the drop on everything and not everything on their, on their service turned out to be a music track. Uh, some stuff was deeply personal. And I think there was one that was a, a, um, a funeral eulogy that it got added into for, for example. Uh, so obviously not something that added delight in the end, but something they thought was fun, funny and was done with the best of intentions. So how do you avoid delight going wrong? Yeah, very, very good question. Uh, and I have another one just to add on your, yours, because I think yours is already quite good one. Uh, so since I worked on uh, video reactions and 
and gesture, etc. So while we have been working on that, uh, Apple released a quite interesting feature, by the way, on iOS 17. And the feature was that you can use hand gesture to trigger some effects. So if you put the thumb up, you get some uh, some fireworks behind you. If you put the heart, you will see many hearts popping up. And the thing is that that feature came by default. It was integrated by default into the system on all Mac OS, Sonoma and iOS 17, etc. Even if the intention was very positive, the fact was to add fun, etc. The problem was that there was a lack of inclusivity consideration. Meaning that there was a lack of consideration of how is the, who, who's using the product, what are the use cases, and it happened is that there was a lot of press coverage about a therapy session that turned super bad because someone is doing like, hey, he's showing a finger completely injured to the therapist, and there was like fireworks all around. So. I'm telling the example because it was a real one and I've seen the cover and people like thought it was about Google Meet. The problem is that it was like a two system combined together who made that it happens. Uh, so just to, to jump into this, I just want to say that it's very important to be inclusive and keep inclusion in mind. And when I say inclusivity, it's not only about the persona, but also about the use cases. Who are using their features? What could be the use cases and in which time it could go wrong? And if you classify them and say, hey, in this case, it may go super wrong, it could be a decision for you to turn the feature not on by default. Like the example I was telling you is a feature that was turned on by default, which created a lot of frustration in some cases. And people are asking, hey, can I, how can I turn off this hand gesture thing? So uh, I think at every discovery phase, we need to consider, is this inclusive enough? Would that cover all use cases, uh, et cetera? So inclusivity is very, very important. And uh, the second thing is, uh, is, of course, like if we, we need to talk about some best practices, how can we put this in, in a good way? I would say uh, it's very important to keep this uh, in a continuous way meaning that we need to think about delight in a super regular way. It's not a one-off thing, but in every time we are building new features, we are thinking about how can we improve our delight quota? Like, how can I make sure that I have these things happening in my roadmap? And I guess that leads on to um, another classic question, which I find myself asking quite a lot, which is, you know, how do you measure this or like, how do you measure the impact of introducing features that are there to delight? Yes. Uh, again, delight is about measuring emotion. And we can all agree that measuring emotion is quite tough. And it's also very subjective. I mean, what pleases me, what makes me surprised and happy may not be the case for all others. So at least it's good to be aware from the beginning as it's not an easy task to measure. But the good news is that there are still some frameworks and some tools that get us, get us closer. I'm not saying that you will get it 100%, but it's all about how can you get some hints and some insight that what you're doing is bringing value to the users and the product, not the opposite, by the way. Uh, one of the things I love um, 
one of the things I used a lot is the heart framework. It's quite famous. It's the, the Google heart framework. And the first H is for happiness. It's like, a, of course, engagement, adoption, uh, retention, and success for the rest. But the very first letter is for happiness. And, and happiness is the hardest to measure. Like all the rest, I think everyone could agree that we can come up with models to measure them. And in order to measure happiness, of course, we can look for customer feedback, we can look for mentions and social mentions, we can look for a review and support, for example. But we can also use some, some metrics. Uh, Randy mentioned earlier, like the NPS. NPS is definitely something need to be monitored on a, on a long term, not on a short term. Uh, there is also another tool that works quite well, which is the CSAT or the Customer Satisfaction Score, which is an in-product survey that ask user for uh, a recent interaction with with a feature uh, here the problem is that uh, csat and nps are very far and they are measuring complete different things csat measures short term happiness following a recent interaction imagine that you're introducing a new feature and while the user is using the feature for the very first time you're asked hey uh, what did uh, what did you like about uh, the feature and a couple of uh, interesting questions, by the way. The last tool, which for me beat them all, is what we call the HATS survey, happiness tracking survey. Maybe you heard about that. It's, it's something between NPS and CSAT because NPS is more uh, for the over-brand satisfaction. doesn't say anything about a specific interaction. CSAT, though, is about a specific interaction. HATS there are some, uh, some documents uh, you can read about HADS at the Happiness Tracking Survey. is also an in-product survey that combines those two, meaning that you can measure a recent interaction and its impact on the overall brand perception over time. Why over time? Because our perception of delight change over time. What is surprising for me today is not going to be surprising next week. So it's very important to track that over time. By the way, this phenomenon has a name. It's called the habituation effect. We get habituated to something surprising today. And that's why I mentioned earlier the importance of maintaining delight in a continuous way. So we need to measure specific interaction. We need to measure the impact of this interaction on the overall brand uh, perception. And we need to measure it continuously over time. Nezreen, this this entire conversation has been delightful. Sorry, Lily did it at the beginning. I have to do it towards the end. But we only have time, I think, for for one last thing, and that's let's let's take all this amazingness and try and do one more practical thing for our listeners. So, what's one thing people can start doing tomorrow to try and bring some more delight to their customers? Uh, so. I'm sure that PMs and designers have many of the Lightfoot feature into their roadmap. It just happened that most of the PM I talk to, they have they have plenty of ideas. Whenever they talk about about this topic with their designer, they realize that they have a long list, quite interesting one, but it just don't get executed and doesn't get into the backlog. So I use Delight personally as one of the product pillar every time I craft a strategy. So when you are crafting a strategy as a PM and you're building like opportunities, it's important to have pillars. Pillars could be like the product should be effortless or should be whatever is important for your product. But one of them 
it happens for me that if I explicitly mention in the strategy deck that delight is a pillar, things change because then you immediately shift your mind from thinking about functionality into thinking about delight in functionality. So when you're building a feature, instead of saying, hey, should it, should it be delight versus functionality? But instead, it has to be delight in functionality. So how can we build features in a way that it's functional and it's delight? So if you need to equate one, one actionable thing, just put delight as one of the pillar for a few, for a year maybe, and see what happens. So add a pink pillar. I got it. A pink pillar, yes. <laughs> or whatever <laughs> color you want. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much, Randy and Lily. I love this conversation too. The product experience is the first and the best podcast from Mind the Product. Our hosts are me, Lily Smith, and me, Randy Silver. Lou Ron Pratt is our producer, and Luke Smith is our editor. Our theme music is from Hamburg-based band POW, that's P-A-U. Thanks to Arnie Kittler, who curates both Product Tank and MTP Engage in Hamburg, and who also plays bass in the band for letting us use their music. You can connect with your local product community via Product Tank, regular free meetups in over 200 cities worldwide. If there's not one near you, maybe you should think about starting one. To find out more, go to mindtheproduct.com forward slash product tank. <laughs>